In the midst of a global health emergency, it's pretty hard to find something to laugh about. But a New York-based comic may be providing just the relief we're looking for with a drop-dead impression of somebody we all watch every day on TV who has absolutely nothing funny to say. We'll talk to the man behind the voice, impressionist J.L. Covan, about how he navigates this most treacherous of comic environments. And we'll talk to Yahoo News senior editor Will Ron about the national swoon over New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. Two hundred and fifty years ago, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whose full name, you know, he was he was Jewish, so his full name might have been like Christowitz, but God rose him from the dead on a holiday we now call Easter. Not a lot of people know that, but it's it's called Easter. We're gonna bring back the entire economy on Easter Sunday. And at that point, I think, basically, I'm better than God. In case you're wondering, that was not President Trump talking about the coronavirus pandemic. It was instead J.L. Covan, comedian impressionist who's getting a lot of attention these days for doing what I think is the best dead-on Trump I've heard yet. And we've got him on the podcast. J.L., welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. This is my real voice. <laughs> so uh, we want to uh, hear some of your real voice and some of your not real voices. But look, Trump's been president, you know, for three years now, more than that. We are just now, I mean, you're, you are just catching on right now in a real big way. I think ever since you did the Trump versus God on Easter uh, YouTube, have you been doing this all along and people are just now starting to pay attention or did you just fall into this recently? Yes. No, I've been, <laughs> I've been doing it for a while, probably since around when he um, announced that he was going to run. And I had done it on some other pod, like I'd been a regular on a, on a different podcast and that got me some YouTube followers and some Twitter followers and everything, but it, nothing, nothing sort of exploded. And I think what the key was after many years of working part-time to facilitate my comedy career, I had finally taken a full-time job again and a global pandemic hit. And like any success story in entertainment, that was exactly when I hit big. So, JL, you talked about things exploding, and doing comedy in the middle of a pandemic can be like walking across a minefield. It's um, 
you got to get it right. You have to do it with, uh, I guess, some level of sensitivity to make sure people are very scared right now. There's an enormous amount of anguish out there. There wasn't anything in the, the video that I saw that rocketed around Twitter uh, you know, was off key. It was it was perfect. I think it provides an enormous amount of comic relief, which people need right now. But how do you navigate that minefield? Well, I think the the great thing about being a, a comic who never breaks through after 16 years is you've already found 85 ways to not do it right. <laughs> so, worst case scenario, what's an 86th way of failing? Um, but I think I didn't have any. My, for the way the video started is I'd done a couple of them. I'm home bored. I'm working from home and I'm a little bored. So, you know, two minutes out of my day, I go, hey, I got the voice. Maybe people will like this. And a few of them got a couple thousand hits. And my friend texted me. I was going to take my dog out for a walk. And my friend texted me and said, I can't believe Trump just said that uh, he's going to have the everything working and everybody out by Easter. And I said, if he just said that, well, maybe I could make a joke on that right now. Like assuming it just happened, maybe I'm actually ahead of the story for a minute and could catch on a little bit. And I just riffed that. I went into, into the, one of the bedrooms and just riffed on the text my friend sent me and posted it and left my phone at home and went to walk my dog. And it just, some sort of magical algorithm got it hits and views and people kept talking about it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. It, like what, cause it felt like I had the seven years of a career that I thought I did. Like I thought I should be at this point, but much more incrementally <laughs> instead it was like, here's eight years of a career shot into your veins over 72 hours. What's really uh, fascinating to me about this is it's not just the voice and the inflections. You've got sort of, you know, Trump's sort of strange back and forth internal monologues that he does. You know, so when you're talking about uh, when he starts talking about God in your video, you know, you say he's a great God, but, you know, not so great in some things. And I mean, that's just classic Trump. So so do you study him? Do you tape his press conferences and then listen to them and pick up on various things? How do you do it? I've, I've always been good at impressions, but I think with Trump, it was almost more like impressions I had, not of famous people, but of friends in high school, teachers in high school, uh, teammates in college, where you're just around somebody five, six hours a day and you pick up on every tick they do and you hear everything because he was so saturated and still is. He has dominated the media for the last four years like like nothing like, you know, it's just Trump all the time. So it was almost like oh, I turn on the news. There's Trump. It was almost like, oh, there's my my you know friend Trump. I just hear him six hours a day and I've picked up on every little thing he does. And then some people have said, oh, I love the writing, the writing of the little video. But I go, I, I never write them because <laughs> that would sort of stifle what he is, which is somebody who's flying by the seat of his pants, but always coming back to ego. So it's, it's, it's a meandering journey back to praising himself, basically, is so what every time he talks is. So let me ask Donald Trump a question. Okay, but it, you know, I want to don't be a nasty question, okay? Because I think you're very well. You know, you're very nasty. <laughs> I haven't even asked the question yet. So, uh, uh, yeah. Come on, ask the question. <laughs> All right. All right. So let me ask you about a key member of your coronavirus team 
who in his own right has become something of a media... Doing a great job, by the way, doing a great job. uh, Who has become something (laughs) of a media celebrity, and that is Dr. Anthony Fauci, but he's also contradicted you at times. So tell me what you think about Dr. Fauci and how he's doing. Well, first, I thought you were going to talk about the great Mike Pence when you were saying what a great... Because he's been working very hard. We love Mike. He's doing a great job. Fauci, you know, as Fauci as Fauci, uh, he's, you know, he's, a, he's kind of an expert. You know, we have a, I have my own sort of, you know, ideas and, and, you know, expertise of sorts. And he, and he has expertise too. He has, he's also, you know, has, but he's got the kind of science where you want, everything's got to be the data and you need all the, you know, you want to get all the reports and all the data. And it's very, it's that, that's one way. That's like the way he does it. And I, you know, I have kind of the instincts and I like kind of feel it. And so I have my own approach to the panel. But we, we work well. We work well uh, together. I think I think Tony would agree. We work well. <laughs> How do you feel when he contradicts you? Well, I think, first of all, that's a nasty question. And <laughs> I don't think there is a contradiction. If you would listen to what he says, he often says that I'm on the right path. So I think, you know, the fake news and the fake podcasts want to say, that there's like contradictions so they can sell papers because obviously, you know, your ratings are very down. So you need to create some kind of controversy. But no, there's no contradiction. But Mr. President, last week you said that you wanted to open up the country and lift the restrictions by Easter. And then Sunday night, you tell us, no, never mind. We're going to keep them in place until April 30, which, by the way, is two weeks after Easter. So how do you reconcile your two contradictory approaches? Excuse me. What we're actually doing is we're talking right now to various faith leaders. We're talking to the pope. And we're going to see if we can move Easter. They're talking about moving Easter to May 5th. I think that's a Sunday. We'll see. Maybe we'll make that a Sunday as well. But we, we're we talking to great faith leaders, okay? Leaders of many great faiths and You're some not so great. Well, you know, some great faiths, some not so great faiths. But we're talking and we're, we're going to see if maybe we can move Easter uh, to May. And then, you know what? We have a great Easter. <laughs> Which are the not great faiths, by the way? Well, you know what? Maybe we can get into that some other. I mean, I think you know. I think you both know that you know what some of the not so great faiths are. By the way, uh, President Trump, uh, you also reversed yourself on whether New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, the tri-state area. Uh, you, at first, you said that they should have a lockdown, and then uh, you reversed yourself um, and said, actually, no. You know, you keep reversing yourself, and there's a, some people think you're giving mixed messages to the American people, which doesn't instill confidence in them in this critical time. Well, I think if you look at the polls, if you look at the great Rasmussen poll, which is one of our most accurate <laughs> polls, you'll see that I, they have great confidence in me. And I, I think they like the fact that I'm always getting the new information. So I, you don't want somebody who just says, I made a decision. We're never changing it. That's the way it is because you get, they're called facts. Okay. Those are like true things. And when you get the facts, you want to maybe sometimes adjust. Maybe sometimes you don't, but sometimes you want to like make a little, like they call it an adjustment and you want to go a different way. So I think we're doing, we're doing a great job. I think nobody disagrees with that. And, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, I got a, a question for JL, if he's still there. Um, oh yeah, I'm, I'm back. I just, I just got <laughs> yeah, the, uh, now you don't, you 
just don't do Trump, right? I've heard tell you do some other people in the administration like the vice president. Uh, the vice president one is one I'm sort of working on. It's just kind of a, okay. it's kind of just a soft <laughs> earnestness. And I want to thank the president for his bold and decisive <laughs> leadership, as well as his incredibly large penis. And I think it's <laughs> the American people are responding. And if you can just hand me my favorite placard to hold up, 15 <laughs> ways to stop the spread. It's like. Somebody has been brought in, like an actor has been brought in to play a TV president. And, and that's what like that's he looks the part like he has. I will give Pence one bit of credit because I've always said that the common thing was, hey, if Trump gets removed from office, you're stuck with Pence. And that's worse. And I said, it's not worse because, in my opinion, Pence will give you the exact same policy, but he can at least fake it to be a sort of calming a facsimile of a calming presence. Like in a moment like this, people do have are giving Pence better ratings simply because he's just better at doing the <laughs> we need to calm the American people and under the great bold large penis leadership of Donald Trump, yeah. we the American people are responding. And it's like what and he comes out with the same script. It's kind of creepy. Yeah. I, I've like kind of memorized it. It's it's like okay, yeah, maybe you want to mix it up a little, robot Pence. <laughs> um, right. So uh, tell us how uh, you've uh, this has taken off for you. I understand you've been getting um, a lot of inquiries to um, as well as a lot appear. of uh, suggestions for my yeah. impression from people who say you should say this next, and I go, <laughs> I've got this under control. Thank you, <laughs> Timmy from Ohio, who. Uh, decided they wanted to tell me how to how to do impressions. No, it's been it's been great. It's been it's been kind of overwhelming. And I, you know, I'm, I guess, either cynical enough or experienced enough not to get try to get too high, because who knows in two weeks if it's all of a sudden that was just the flavor of the flavor of the week, flavor of the month. But I do think that some some nice opportunities are going to are going to come from this. So, you know, I just have to sort of seize on it and kind of try to, I'm already posting like other videos I've made, trying to steer at least some of the people who've come to me for Trump, like come, come for the Trump impression and then leave with like a CD or a, a, a different impression. So you kind of realize there's other avenues when hopefully he's out of office in nine months. But you can't, you can't do clubs now, right? You can't do any stand up. So it's all just making videos in your, in your home. Yeah. So I, I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. It's like at the, at one time, if, if, if this hadn't happened, maybe this video would have gotten some views and been a nice little thing. But the other, the flip side of that is, okay, now I'm finally having the career moment I've been dying for. And I'm just sitting in my kitchen, basically you know, talking to people on a computer. <laughs> By the way, does the name Vaughn meter mean anything to you? Yes. Um, and I'm glad that I did. That's that's one of the many reasons why, you know, we should tell people who he is. He, he did. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, he was a great Kennedy impersonator and who Lenny Bruce famously said the night Kennedy was shot. Uh, well, I guess Vaughn meters out of a job, which is basically kind of what happened to his career, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, basically he disappeared after, um, after the Kennedy assassination. And of course, you know, you're pretty well assured of, uh, staying in business at least until November. But, uh, what happens after that? Um, unless McDonald's is on the grassy knoll. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, after that, that's why I'm sort of, that's the funny thing is I've, you know, I was a comedian who'd, who'd had late night credits 
uh, and been doing standup for, you know, 12 and a half years before Donald Trump or 11 and a half years before Donald Trump, the candidate showed up. So I'd like to think that if I can steer enough people, you know, hey, here's some Trump and also here's some other stand up and here's some other uh, impression videos and stuff like that. So you're not going to be pushing for his reelection because you want to keep this thing going. <laughs> no, I can't. And I, yeah. And, and to be honest, not to not to break the funny thing, but to be honest, if he were to be reelected, because right now we have this. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I was a happy Hillary supporter. Uh, I know they're, they're not everybody was, but I was, but him getting another term is sort of would feel like America saying this wasn't a mistake or we didn't learn from a poor decision. It's, it's sort of saying, no, this is the path we now want to travel as a country. And I, I don't see that as funny anymore. Like there's this glimmer of hope that he'll be out of office in January and I sort of take that as like, a, okay, so there, it's dark, but some humor can be found in darkness. But it feels like uh, he gets reelected. It feels like the, the light is gone. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, spreading the light in a time of darkness, this is, uh, this is a good time for you to plug your albums, your podcasts, anything else you want to plug so that uh, the country uh, going through this time of extraordinary anguish can uh, feel a little bit of comic relief. So go for it. And just to let the people know, this is a comedian who's recently been endorsed by Eric Bogosian, Richard Marks, and Lou Diamond Phillips. So if you're a 1980s star somewhere, <laughs> boy, do I have some content for you. Um, the podcast, my podcast, As Trump, which is a weekly show, is called Making Podcasts Great Again. Uh, it's it's available you know, pretty much anywhere you get podcasts. I have many albums for sale on my, uh, you know, I have six stand-up albums for sale on my website, which is jlcomedy.com, and one album from a friend at You Lucky Dog Productions called Fireside Craps, which is an album entirely as Trump, and we have a phenomenal sequel coming out next month called Fireside Craps, The Deuce. Um, and I guess, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you'll probably post my Twitter account at jlcovan. Right. And then obviously the video is getting a lot of traction on Twitter, but I'm also getting a lot of YouTube hits and the YouTube hits are monetized. So if you feel like scrolling through all the content I alluded to, youtube.com slash J-L-C-A-U-V-I-N. I've got a last question for President Trump, if he's still there. Um, well, you know, we uh, got to run, but if you make it, uh, make it a quick question. We've been trying to get you as a guest on Skullduggery for quite some time. And I think uh, since at least we've got you briefly here, uh, would you like to come on and do a full show responding to uh, J.L. Coven? Well, uh, you know what I mean? He's a, a failed comedian, okay, <laughs> who really the only thing that he's even got going for him is that he does a, like, I'll give him some credit, like a mediocre impression of me. And, you know, I would gladly respond to him. Uh, that would be fine. I have no problem with that. But, uh, you know, he is a failed comedian. Well, of course, some people would say you're a failed president. But, um, <laughs> and those we'll... people would be the Dems and the losers. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Who are often, by the way, the same people. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank both JL and uh, President Trump for appearing on uh, this episode of Skullduggery, and I hope you'll both come back. Absolutely. Thank you very much. This is fun. <laughs> All right, okay. JL. Thanks, Thanks so lot. much for doing it. Really appreciate it.
Joining us on the podcast in his maiden appearance is Will Ron, senior editor for Yahoo News. And Will, you wrote a super interesting column about uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo for the site, about his response to the coronavirus crisis and his sort of start turn at this moment where Americans um, are looking for leadership to believe in. So first of all, welcome to Skullduggery, Will. Thanks so much for having me. So there's been this kind of national swoon. I think a lot of people heard about the post on Jezebel from the single woman who wrote, help, I think I'm in love with Andrew Cuomo, not something not someone who in the past has inspired love letters from single women, but the country has become kind of addicted to his briefings. They've become a kind of national therapy session. And of course, you've got like Democrats now who are, some Democrats anyway, who are sort of fantasizing about Cuomo knocking Biden off the ticket to challenge Trump. So you wrote this column, you started it off by saying that Cuomo didn't exactly rise to the occasion the last time New York's New Yorkers were facing a crisis of this magnitude, which is uh, 9-11, the first time he ran for governor and had to pull out. So what does he know that he didn't know back then? What has his evolution been? What has he learned so that he is now meeting this very difficult moment? Well, I think what you're seeing with him right now is that while other politicians who are very prominent in this crisis, I think about Mayor de Blasio, President Trump. President Trump has tried to take shots at some other leaders, including Andrew Cuomo and Jay Inslee. At the same time, de Blasio has been in his press conferences really calling for the federal government to, to pick up the slack and has been very critical of President Trump. Cuomo Interestingly, he doesn't seem to indulge in any of this. And normally, we know Andrew Cuomo in New York is someone who absolutely loves to spar with Bill de Blasio. He loves to criticize President Trump. And right now, he's really not taking the bait from Trump. He's set aside his fight with de Blasio. And I think it's because he understands that all of that right now, it makes a leader seem small. It makes them seem petty. It makes them look like they're still stuck in an era before the coronavirus. And Cuomo has gotten up there, and he instead, he speaks about the emergency. He's eloquent. Uh, he doesn't indulge in any kind of political squabbling, really. He is reassuring because he seems like someone who knows what he's doing. And while that's a low bar, it's a low bar that we set for our politicians, he's one of the few who's really getting over it. So one more, one follow up, and then I know, Mike, you want to jump in here. You talked about the era before the coronavirus uh, crisis. And in that era, which is frankly is an era that we're still living through, th that was one that kind of privileged populists and demagogues and politicians who are more ideologically driven and sometimes add more bluster than competence and expertise and moderation. And so that seems to me what he's part of what he's benefiting from right now. And those qualities tend to be qualities of governors, right? So this is a governor's moment in this country. Right, right. It's, you know, it, we, we've talked some about the, the newfound prominence of governors in America. 
But for most of the, the post-war era, it was considered probably the second best stepping stone to the presidency, second really only to the, to the vice presidency. People really wanted someone who had proven that they could run a state, that they could actually manage a government and deal with things like disasters, deal with things like unrest. We have ways of measuring governors that we don't have really for senators. In a state, unemployment goes up or it goes down. Services increase or they decrease. Taxes go up or down. We can measure these things with governors. And in this political environment that, as you said, we're still living in, this has been it hasn't helped governors as they attempt to become president. The last governor we elected president, that was 20 years ago now, that was George W. Bush. And part of that is, the reason for that is, we look at the, the polarization, the partisanship of the current moment. Senators, members of the House, they get to be pure to a party's base in a way a governor does not. If you're a senator, you can really toe the party line. You can take maximalist approaches. You can go for big stunt votes. I've been thinking some about the dispute between Ted Cruz and Chris Christie after Hurricane Sandy, New York's, really, it's our most recent disaster. And Ted Cruz, to make himself look pure to the Tea Party, he got up there and he fought against the disaster relief. And Chris Christie got into a big fight with him. And of course, both of them ran for president and Ted Cruz went farther. Uh, governors are forced to make trade-offs. They're forced to make policy trade-offs. If you're a member of Congress, as they remind us endlessly, you don't have to really make the choice between agreeing to a tax cut and reducing spending on, say, the military or on social services because they get to deficit spend. They're not held to any kind of balanced budget requirements. But if you're a governor like Andrew Cuomo, you, you do have to make these decisions. If you're a governor anywhere but Vermont, I believe only Vermont doesn't have a balanced budget requirement. Governors are just forced to make decisions in a higher stakes environment than, say, a senator is. A senator can spend his entire career going on television and going back and working his base and naming post offices and delivering pork back to the state and not really having to make that many hard choices. Well, you know, of course, uh, Vermont doesn't have a balanced budget law because they've got a socialist senator. So I assume there's some <laughs> connection there. Right. But and a Republican governor. But look, I, a couple things. First, you mentioned that one of the reasons Cuomo is uh, is benefiting so much is that he doesn't appear petty and small. Of course, our president continues to appear petty and small. And yet, oddly, that doesn't seem to be hurting him in the polls. If anything, there's this uptick somewhat. But an uptick, but compare him to, like, say, George W. Bush after 9-11, when he became, I, I believe, still the most president, the popular president in American history. Also, I, I think there were, I mean, Cuomo's approval ratings in New York for how he was handling this was like in the high 80s. So, well, look, let's deal with the fantasies first and foremost, because, frankly, that's why this is getting all the attention it does. You have people watching Cuomo's briefings and saying, God, we wish he could be our candidate for president this year. Now, as a practical matter, 
is there any way, any scenario that you see that that can happen? A short answer, no, because, you know, I think there's this fantasy that the the party bosses, to the extent that they exist in the Democratic Party, can tell Joe that they're putting him aside and they're going to nominate Andrew Cuomo for the good of the party. Now, Joe Biden, this is his third run for the presidency. He is closer, far closer than he's ever been. He is the likely, if not presumptive, Democratic nominee. His entire life has been working to this moment, and he was discounted. People thought that he was never going to win the primary. They thought he was dead in the water. He is now so close, and he's still polling well against Trump. So what's the scenario where where Joe Biden agrees to step away? I, I don't see a way that Andrew Cuomo could become the nominee without the acquiescence, without the enthusiastic acquiescence of Joe Biden. You know, as a practical matter, uh, you're probably right. The only scenario would presumably be if you get to July, uh, when we'll have our virtual convention, Ed Trump is trouncing uh, Biden in the polls and Democrats uh, freak out and start looking around and pledge delegates would have to abandon Biden. A highly unlikely scenario, if for no other reason that in our polarized political world, you know, it's hard to imagine any scenario where Trump is going to have a convincing lead over Biden in the polls in July. Opinions about Trump are so baked in that one cannot envision any change in that. If anything, I would think it would be more likely that the Republicans would be freaking out if the uh, social distancing restrictions are continuing through the summer. The economy is cratered still. We're in a deep recession, if not depression. And then um, you might have some Republicans thinking this guy, we can't renominate uh, Trump for president. But we should put that those cards on the table. Cuomo is not going to be the Democratic nominee for president in 2020. He's not. And for all of our for his for the current adulation of Governor Cuomo and these talks about him somehow becoming the Democratic nominee, this is man. Of course, he wasn't in the primaries. He's been governor uh, of New York for 10 years. Albany can be a rough place. It's not really a place for idealism. And he would need to be vetted in a way that, I mean, the old saying that you're not vetted in politics until you run for president. Andrew Cuomo, I think the vast majority of New Yorkers would agree right now that he's doing a great job, but we're not really peeking under the hood at all either. And what do you think we might find under the hood? Well, again, he's a creature of Albany. And Albany, if you remember that line from Hamilton, it's it's been synonymous with corruption essentially since it was built. And I'm not saying that Andrew Cuomo is corrupt, but I will say that New Yorkers, you know, we hold our our politicians to an awfully low bar. Yeah, and and I got to I got to say that bar has been substantially lowered in the last 3 years by the current president. So, it, Well, you know, I'd like to uh, also just remind our listeners that Andrew Cuomo was under investigation by the US Attorney's Office in Manhattan not too long ago when Preet Bharara, the Democratic appointed US Attorney was in charge. He launched a full-scale investigation into Cuomo's efforts 
to uh, interfere with the work of something called the Moreland Commission to Investigate Public Corruption. It was an ethics panel set up by the Cuomo administration to deal with the rash of corruption cases that were breaking out all over Albany. And then when they started looking, when that panel started looking at Cuomo's administration itself, he began to interfere with it and tried to uh, curtail its work. Perara uh, opened up an investigation in, I think, uh, 2014. And it wasn't until two years later, January 2016, when the U.S. Attorney's Office announced that after a thorough investigation, it concluded there was, quote, insufficient evidence to prove a federal crime, very similar to the kind of language Robert Mueller used when he uh, uh, released his report on uh, on President Trump. But surely the many allegations that prompted that investigation would be revived and be reinvestigated by the media, if nobody else uh, were Cuomo to emerge as a presidential candidate. I'm sure it would be. Uh, We are overlooking one other possibility, which also seems remote to me, but he doesn't get on the ticket this time. I think we've established that that's not going to happen. And he can't be um, the vice presidential candidate either. No, no, no. no. But if Trump Trump wins, then he certainly could challenge Trump in 2024. If Biden wins, you know, I don't think anyone would be shocked— if Biden only serves one term, so he could run in, in 2024, although uh, whoever Biden's vice presidential pick would probably have a leg, leg up on, on Cuomo. But so there are those possibilities. But I, I wanted to ask you, Will, I mean, Cuomo's performance raises this issue, which we touched on at the beginning of the conversation, which is people are looking at him and praising him because of his competence, because of his ability to get things done because of his knowledge of public health and other issues, because of his effective communication skills. Is this just a passing moment? And do you think that after this crisis recedes, we're just going to go back to where we've been, you know, in terms of partisanship, in terms of distrust of government, distrust of science, facts, expertise? Or do you think there's any glimmer of hope that coming through this where facts and science and effective governing can mean the difference between life and death will change the way people view government at all. Politicians, particularly populist politicians on the right and left, are both going to need to step up and prove that they're actually able to govern through one way or another. But I still think what we're looking at, particularly given the economic disruption that we're looking at and the schedule, the length of time it's going to take to resolve the economic consequences of all of this. You're going to see a lot of people, of course, unemployed. And this is going to remind people that how precarious their position can be in the economy, how they will need to rely on government to bail them out as a matter of last resort. And I think that that will just fuel populist movements, both on the right and the left. On the right, there's going to be great enthusiasm, I think, uh, for some sort of renewal of industrial policy. You might see that on the left as well. Moving manufacturing back to the United States, making sure that our supply chains for our most necessary materials, they're all kept within the United States, or at least very friendly countries. This idea that we could depend on China to 
be producing the things that we need just to exist, just for our basic national defense and our national infrastructure. I think on the, on the right, there's going to be, you already see it right now, there's there's tremendous anger at China, and there's going to be an enthusiasm to to enact larger tariffs, to, to have more concrete borders. At the same time, on the left right now, I think there's going to be greater enthusiasm for something like Medicare for all, some kind of universal health care for people and increasing the minimum wage, uh, protecting people from being firing, perhaps, for one of the few nations that really embraces at-will employment. It's going to, uh, we see right now, the people who are really on the front lines of this crisis, these are people who are not paid particularly well, they're in precarious economic positions, and they're really keeping a city like New York, New York alive the delivery people, the cooks, the nurses, the emergency room doctors, the police, the firemen. We could add the uh, the ambulances because I think some of our listeners may have heard the sirens in the background, uh, which is uh, always a feature of, of life in New York City. But right now, a grim reminder of the, the crisis that we're that we're living through. I think crisis is going to strengthen populist movements, not not take away their power. Hey, well, can you talk a bit about the relationship between Cuomo and de Blasio? They do not like each other. I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school when I say... Why don't they like each other? Okay, so on the very basic level, when a state just becomes captured by one party, and New York is just a democratic state, uh, there's essentially no statewide GOP anymore. We haven't elected a statewide, a Republican statewide since George Pataki in 2002. When a state is just captured by one party, it cleaves into two parties. And we have Cuomo, who kind of is the head of the, really the the right wing or the centrist part of the Democratic Party, the comparative right wing. And we have Bill de Blasio as his main foil because he's the, really the leader of the state's left wing. And you have that, and then there's also just the basic tension that always exists between New York mayors and New York governors. They both think that they're the most important man in the state, and so their relationships tend to be dysfunctional. Giuliani and Pataki, for example, did not get along. But it's definitely, there's a personal element to it because, well, that probably gets into the personalities of the two men that sort of heightens everything, and Andrew Cuomo's innate competitiveness. Uh, you remember their disputes about the subways when the subways are really taking a turn for the worse here in New York City. And every day for about a year, Andrew Cuomo got up and blamed Bill de Blasio, and Bill de Blasio got up and blamed Andrew Cuomo. And there was a certain tragedy of the commons involved in our, our metro authority that allowed them to blame each other. Uh, so anytime New York has problems, they like to point the finger at each other, and they've been doing it so long that it's a real serious personal uh, I, I remember when uh, the two of them actually fought over a deer. Uh, I think the tabloids called it Bambi, who got lost somewhere in New York City, I think in uh, in Harlem. And <laughs> they were both fighting over this deer that was on the loose. But I'm struck by the way these two politicians have dealt with Trump because, and I think it shows that Cuomo has real range as a politician and de Blasio um, is kind of a one-trick pony. I mean, I think someone referred to Cuomo as a a four-pitch pitcher and de Blasio uh, seems to be a politician who can only throw, you know, high and hard fastballs right at Trump's head 
Cuomo has been much more nuanced. He's been critical of the federal government. He's been critical of Trump to some degree, but he has not been engaging in constant kind of personal attacks the way de Blasio has. And when you see him doing these briefings, you just see that the guy has so many different ways of communicating with voters. You know, he's the empathetic parent, but also the stern father. He is funny. He communicates incredibly well. He talks about his family. Um, He's always talking about his dad and with uh, Matilda, his mom, in a way that I think is highly relatable. Uh, These are not qualities that Bill de Blasio has. Yeah, Pataki has, you know, nepotism gets a bad rap in America, but Andrew Cuomo did spend uh, 12 years at his father's side learning the mechanics of government and specifically New York state government. He was, even as a a very young man, he was one of his uh, father's senior advisors. Then he went to the federal government. He had a stint managing HUD, which is an almost ungovernable bureaucracy. He spent the last 14 years of his life as an elected official in New York. And with that kind of experience, experience that can be a double-edged sword on the national stage because it comes with a paper trail. But we're seeing the value of that experience just because Andrew Cuomo, if nothing else, he knows how New York is run. He knows how to manage the agencies. He knows the people involved. He knows where they're strong, where they're weak, what he can get from the federal government, what he can get from the state legislature, what people are looking for in a crisis, which is not what Bill de Blasio has given up. Right. I I have to say it's also pretty remarkable that during this period where New York City is the epicenter of the pandemic, that... Cuomo and de Blasio do not appear together at these briefings. You would think under other circumstances, the governor and the mayor of the city most affected would try to put up a united front, but they don't even try. Well, keep in mind that de Blasio is taller than Cuomo, and I'm not sure Cuomo would like <laughs> All right. Well, um, on that note, I think we've made our points about uh, Andrew Cuomo, his uh, popularity and the limits of uh, where it could take him. So, uh, Will, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to comedian and impressionist J.L. Covan and Yahoo News senior editor Will Ron for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you soon.